Good morning. Please take your Bibles and turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 3. Hebrews, chapter 3. Last week, we begun that section where the writer quotes Psalm 95 at length, and we will see him expound that now in a new covenant application. In verse 7, it says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Every one of us needs to be reminded that just because you're a member of a church and community is not a guarantee that you will go to heaven. Remember the Exodus. There were so many of them, 600,000 men, and they're traveling around for 40 years. And they were in a covenant community. They had Moses, and yet they were guilty of unbelief. Today, the writer will encourage us, beware, be careful, don't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin will take you further than you ever wanted to stray. It will cost you more than you ever dreamed you would pay. And it'll keep you longer than you ever thought you would stay. Are you possibly cherishing a sin of some sort today? That maybe it's like a pet, a pet that you pet every now and again, Examine yourselves in this regard, and I'll give you this, uh, this example of a man back in 2010, I think it was in Kansas, or Nebraska actually, and he had a pet boa constrictor for 15 years. He would pet it, let it go around, and all of that. Well, finally, one day, the pet wrapped itself around the owner with a grip that resulted tragically in the owner's death. Well, you see, wild animals can remain wild even though they look tame for 15 years, and so too with sin. Sin is deceitful, it is strong. And by the way, that snake was only 25 pounds and about 9 feet long, and yet it wrapped itself around and, and killed this man. We need to beware of sin. Well, let's read verses 12 to 19. That will be our text today primarily focusing on those first three verses, um, but let's go ahead and read it. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil and unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if... We hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it, was it not those who had sinned and whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Let's pray. Father in heaven, search our hearts indeed, know our minds, see if there be any hurtful way in us, lead us in the way of everlasting. Lord, may your word Come home into each of our hearts with mighty power, driven by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Lord, we ask that you would have your way in this congregation even this day, even as the original writer was writing to his own congregation. Lord, may we see these words and how they fit for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, remember the primary overarching theme of the book of Hebrews is that Christ is superior to anything and everything else. The new covenant is superior to the old covenant. That's driven home many different times. Christ is superior to the prophets. He's superior to the angels. He's superior to Moses. And last time we saw in verse 7 there, notice it says the Holy Spirit says. Now we think David wrote this psalm, but it's interesting how he points to divine inspiration that ultimately it is from God. We emphasize the fact of, of how the writer in Psalm 95 to the Jews Today, if you hear his voice, there's an urgency not to put it off till tomorrow, not to let it fly by until today is now yesterday, but the present moment now, there's an urgency. And that urgency was real in the midst of of the Exodus generation, the, the two texts primarily that we looked at, Exodus 17 and Numbers 14, when they rebelled. And he says in verse 11, they shall not enter my rest. They shall not enter my rest. Rest is a beautiful picture which literally refers to that land just beyond the Jordan. Figuratively, it reminds us of that heavenly rest that will be ours, of which chapter 4 will largely be about developing that. But no, they sinned, they rebelled, they provoked God, and every one of the males 20 years and older had to fall and die in the wilderness before they could enter in. It took some 38 years, 38 and a half years after Kadesh Barnea in Numbers 14. Deuteronomy 2.14 is a good summary of this. Now, the time that it took for us to come from Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the brook Zered was 38 years until all the generation of men of war perished from within the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. That's a sobering reminder that God takes it seriously when you provoke him with your rebellion and your obstinate attitude. The whole generation had to die off before they could enter. Well, today we see our author is not only a gifted expositor, as we'll see him unpack uh, really the, 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 the lengthy quote from Psalm 95, but also he's a devoted pastor. His heart is burdened for the people of God to whom he is writing. Psalm 95, of course, tells of the Exodus. They'd come out of Egypt. The armies were destroyed. They're set free. They're they're singing in the Song of Moses, and yet they began to rebel almost instantaneously. And the author will expound Psalm 95 in chapters 3 and 4, but it's, it's his great pastoral concern. He doesn't want any of them to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin like the Jews were during the Exodus. And so he brings this strong admonishment and encouragement to the people by applying the truths of Psalm 95, that they might persevere even in times of persecution, even in times of difficulty, that they would not waver, that they would not fall away into apostasy. You see, perseverance of the saints, brethren, is a community project, okay? Solo Christianity doesn't work, (laughs) We are designed to be in the context of the local church, in the context of the covenant community. We see that again and again in the scriptures. Well, we're going to unpack this just under two brief points. 
Verses 12 to 14 is under the head, the new covenant application of Psalm 95. And then finally, the rest of the chapter, the peril of unbelief. Now again, this, it's a warning to this little house church. Persecution heating up. Remember, we're in the late, mid to late 60s under Nero's persecution in Rome as Jewish Hebrew Christians. They're, they're hated by the Jews, they're hated by the Romans, and they're going about seeking to live their lives. And so there's a temptation as the persecution heats up, and, and, and men and uh, heads of households, their children are harassed, and their wives are harassed in the marketplace. Wouldn't it just be so much easier to just go back to the synagogue? I mean, at least we're worshiping Yahweh. Let's just go back. Because, you see, the synagogue was a sanctioned religion of Rome. And so it would be a place of safety. And so you can see the incredible temptation that, why don't we just go back? But no, that's not an option. Because Christ is so far superior. By the way, it's interesting if Christ was crucified somewhere around 30 AD or so, and and if this is just before 70 AD, you almost have 40 years, and some commentators actually bring this up, that maybe this is in the writer's mind because it's now been 40 years since Christ, and there's still this temptation to go back like Israel had done. Well, let's look at verse 12. Verse, Verse 12 to 19 is a warning against unfaithfulness. But, but the writer not only uses incredible rhetorical skill, but he repeats words that, that are from the psalm that we saw last week. Heart, day, today, here, to enter, and to test and unbelief. All of those words that were quoted from Psalm 95, he now develops in a new covenant application for his people. Just as Israel was led out of Egypt into those difficult wilderness wanderings, so too for us in this present life. Even strong believers encounter hardships and temptations. And why does God allow that? It reveals the genuineness of our faith. It's a litmus test that truly we are in Christ, united to Him. The writer in verse 12 uses an imperative, a command here. Take care. Beware. More literally, watch out. It's it's a strong admonition here. Watch out. And this applies to us personally. Take care, brothers or brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away. From the living God. Watchfulness is absolutely necessary in our perseverance. It's blepo in the original and the command, and it means to be careful, to be on the alert. And, and the, the, the tense is that we're to be constantly vigilant. Okay? It's not just on Sunday mornings, beware, right? No, it's constant, it's present tense. You need to constantly take heed and to be watchful. Paul uses this um, verb three times in Philippians 3.2 that we saw. It's translated, beware. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. So the writer believes that most of their names are written in the book of life. It's not as though he's saying, watch out. I think you're all a bunch of unregenerate reprobates. It's not that at all. He believes they're the covenant community. But in any covenant community, you've got the wheat, but there's always a few tares, isn't there? 
There's always a few tears. We know that from personal experience. If you've been in the Christian life any length of time, we know that from the biblical evidence as well. We need to understand, brethren, that warnings, and this is the second warning passage in the book of Hebrews, that warnings are good for us. Warning is a method. It's a means to correct our ways. It's a method for us to be encouraged to modify our direction. Now, in Sunset Cliffs, and those of you visiting from out of town, you want to see Sunset Cliffs, what do you see there? All these signs. Warning, unstable cliffs, do not cross the the guardrail, and all of that. And what happens? If you watch the local news a couple times a week, at least several times a month, there's a rescue because somebody had fallen down, and, and, and many actually perish. In there, But that warning sign is there for a reason, that you would correct your direction. And so too, in the church, here, he gives a warning. Beware, brethren, there not be in any one of you an evil and an unbelieving heart. It's like if you, I grew up in the Midwest, you get these tornado warnings. When there's a tornado warning, you just don't go out and play and climb up in a tree, in a treehouse, right? You want to stay low, you want to be vigilant, you want to be ready to get to the basement. We need to take the warning seriously. Now, grammatically, the turning away from the living God is caused by the evil, unbelieving heart. The application is personal and it's pointed and it's clear. Watch out, brothers and sisters, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Now, in the uh, Septuagint, the word heart appears about a hundred times. That's a Greek translation of the Old Testament, as you know. But this phrase, this evil heart, we don't see that many other places. It only occurs two times in the entire Old Testament. In Jeremiah 16, 12, it's a similar passage as one of them. You, too, have done evil, even more than your forefathers, and behold, You are each one walking according to the stubbornness of your own evil evil heart without listening to me. Notice that phrase, without listening to me. You see, when you have an evil, unbelieving heart, your ears are, are, are stopped up to the commands of God. Unbelief is more than just unbelief. It's a willing disbelief. It's a refusal to believe. If a thief steals, and he goes and, and steals, he's, he's not trusting God to per, provide for him. Sins of sexual immorality, drunkenness, uh, gluttony, um, you know, all of this kind of stuff, deny that God is really the source of our greatest pleasure, because we're running after the pleasures of these, this world. We don't truly believe our ultimate satisfaction is in Him alone. And so we conclude that unbelief is really the root of all sin, isn't it? It's the root of all sin, the sins of being greedy, dishonest, envious, self-righteous, bitter, are all rooted in unbelief. And the root of unbelief is part of our original depravity. It's there, but with regenerate hearts, those, those things should be uprooted more and more. We read in James 1, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. That's why we need to have guardrails around our desires so they do not become inordinate desires, right? These are the ones that reject God's word 
because they have a greater love for sin than the things of God. Their love for sin makes them deaf to the very commands of God's word as they would come. But also, we need to be wise, and we know this from other texts, right? That that there's an enemy going about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And so the craft and deceit of Satan is another way to invoke a, a positive unbelief. Charles Spurgeon said, Many professors have had an evil heart. It is not every church member who has a new heart and a right spirit. Judas was in the church, but he had an evil heart and he was a devil. It may be so with you, my brother, or with you, my sister. There are some in the church who have no real faith in Christ. Their very heart is crammed full of unbelief, though they can pretend that they have believed in Christ. It's from his sermon, Take Heed. Excellent sermon. What about you, my friend? We have some here I don't know, some visiting. What about you? Have you just been playing with religion? Or have you bowed the knee? Have you experienced regeneration? Do you know that the old man is the old man and now there's a new man, a new man that's not perfect and won't be perfect until glorification, but, but a man that is nothing like he once was and is being more and more sanctified with time. And then the warning here that falls away from the living God, that is apostasy. It's a word, we see it 14 times in our New Testament. It's a compound word. Apo means from, uh, histamine means to stand. So it literally means to stand off from, to withdraw or to forsake. It's the word that Paul uses in 1 Timothy 4.1, but the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times, some will fall away from the faith. Some will fall away. Now, these we want to make it very, very clear. Is the writer saying that, that, that these genuine Christians somehow, if they're not watching out enough and exerting enough energy to fight against sin, that they can lose their salvation? Never. Never. Once you are converted, you are saved. But brethren, the warnings are here for us that we might be examining ourselves and we might be encouraging others that the genuineness of our faith will be proven by our perseverance unto the end. And the reality is there are many who don't. Caleb and Joshua in Numbers 14 uh, 8 to 10, there's a beautiful scene here where really they're exhorting the Israelites a warning just like this very verse. I'll read it. As they're telling, this is as the spies are giving their report. Uh, it is, if the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Only do not turn away from the Lord. He exhorts the others. And do not fear the people of that land, for they will be our prey. Their protection will be removed from him, for the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. But all the congregation said, thank you for that warning and that reminder. We repent of our waywardness. We will follow the Lord God. No. You know what they did? In verse 10 of chapter 14, and the congregation said to stone them with stones, And the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting and to the sons of Israel. Do you see what's happened there? 
Here's these righteous men that seem like they're one in a thousand, but they're standing up in the face of unbelief, exhorting that you not fall away. And what happens? The response, the unbelief is so so intense that they grab stones, and the Lord comes down with the glory cloud to really protect them and to deliver them so that they could not stone them. Think of in our New Testaments. Think of the other New Testament casualties. Think of Judas, three plus years side by side with the Lord Jesus Christ. He begins well. He looks like a a real disciple, doesn't he? But it doesn't end well. Think of Ananias and Sapphira. Here they come. They bring their offering to Peter, a 50% tithe. But what happens? Their, Their deceit, the deceitfulness of sin caused them to lie And to say, is this thus and thus much that you received for the property? And they lied, and they kept some of that money back. About Demas, that fellow worker of Paul, we see in three or four different texts, uh, being mentioned in a positive way and, and working with Paul. And finally, in Paul's last letter in 2 Timothy, I think it's 4, 8, it says, and Demas, having loved this present world, has left me an indication that he has walked away. Listen, brethren, listen to William Jenkins, the Puritan. To forsake Christ for the world is to leave a treasure for a trifle, eternity for a moment, the reality for a shadow, all things for nothing. There's many New Testament casualties. We looked at it a couple weeks ago in 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul recounts this very episode and how the people sat down to drink and eat and drink and they stood up to play let us not act immorally well as they did let us not try the lord as some of them did let us not grumble as they did now these things happened to them is an example and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come remember jesus in the parable of the soils you have the rocky soil you have the um, hard ground the stony ground you have the rocky soil you've got the thorns and the good soil well what's what's it said about the rocky soil he immediately receives it with joy but then the son of persecution comes and what happens that plant withers away because he has no firm root in himself countless people are rocky soil hearers Others are thorny ground hearers where they're choked out by the cares of this world. Those of us who have been Christians for any length of time have seen people falling away. Professors of religion and professors of Christ, some that even led great ministries, have walked away from the faith. Apostasy is real. It is real. Some people are, are nothing more than fair-weather followers. As long as it's all good and I'm getting, my, you know, getting you know, the right itch and all of this kind of stuff, I'm good. But there is no real substance of themselves. It's quite common for people to, as it were, to use that language, to come out of Egypt, to come out of the world for a season, to cross the Red Sea, and to journey for a while to ultimately turn back. 1 John 2.19, John says, they went out from us because they were not really of us. 
If they, had re, if they were really of us, they would, ne- they would not have gone out from us. That's the evidence. Jesus in the Olivet Discourse, because the lawlessness has increased, most people's love will grow cold. But it's the one who endures to the end that will be saved. Listen to Spurgeon again. Here's the charge is not to the outside of the church, but to those who are called holy brothers. But here in this verse, he drops, in verse 1, he calls them holy brethren. He drops the holy, for there are some brothers, so-called brothers, who are called that way, who do not deserve the name. And to them, he speaks very pointedly, watch out, watch out, lest there be in some of you an evil, unbelieving heart. But how will that be shown? He goes by wandering off one way or another away from the living God. And that's the evidence we have. We can't read each other's hearts. Moving to verse 13. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The author balances his strong warning of verse 12 now with a positive encouragement. Notice the first word, but. It's a strong contrast. But encourage one another. Here's the remedy for the danger. As I said, perseverance is a community project. Why do you think those words of the flock, right? A flock stays together. A a, a household, a body, right? A, A family are used to describe us. If you choose to walk alone, you won't walk very long. We need each other. Now notice what he says, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is called today. There he is, hearkening back to verse 7, isn't he? Today. Today is the day to where to do this. Here's an urgency because there's a time limit we only have today. It's as long as it's called today. And the writer emphasizes this by putting the uh, definite article in front of it. It's, you, you don't see it in the English. It's the today. Like he's emphasizing this is it. This is the day. In the Old Testament, um, was, you know, the, the idea of today was used mostly in the book of Deuteronomy, an urgency to heed the covenant, to heed the covenant. So you see it throughout Deuteronomy, you see it in Joshua a little bit as well. But in the Psalms, the word only occurs twice. And the first one we saw back in chapter 1 and verse 5. You are my son, today I have begotten thee, right? That's Psalm 2 and verse 7. The second and only other time in the entire Psalter, as you guessed it, in our text, Psalm 95, right here. And so he's emphasizing this. Now, what does it mean to encourage one another? It's to urge strongly, to appeal to, to exhort, to encourage. This particular word can sometimes mean admonishment, though very rarely. Again, it's a compound word, a preposition, para, which is alongside, and kaleo, just how it sounds, to call out. And so it's to call alongside. Like when I was teaching my kids how to roller skate, I'm calling them along my side, going along with them so they don't fall and crack their head open. It's, it's, a, it's a calling alongside, an appeal to urge This is the antidote, brethren, of falling away. This is the antidote right here before us. Encouragement, encouragement, day by day, as long as it is called today. 
We are to expend much energy in watching over our own hearts, as we see in verse 12, take care, brethren, in any one of you, but also in the covenant community. We're to be active in that, to exhort others to do the same. Listen to John Calvin. As by nature we are prone to fall into evil, we have need of various helps to help us and the fear of God. Unless our faith is repeatedly encouraged, it lies dormant. Unless it is warmed, it grows cold. Unless it is aroused, it gets numb. So the writer desires them to stimulate one another by mutual encouragement. Brethren, there needs to be a context for this. I think the writer means a little bit more than a Facebook post or like a one-liner, you know, uh, something like that. You think he means a little bit more, and I'm not saying Facebook can never be used to encourage others, I'm not saying that. But what I'm talking about, there's an active and a lively fellowship in the covenant community of being together face-to-face, opportunities of being together. That's why the Lord's Day is the, the peak of my week. I love it. I love to be around you, to worship the Lord, to have that fellowship time. It's, it's active, it's lively, it's essential for us to not be deceived by sin. But one day a week isn't going to get you very far. That's why there should be other opportunities, inviting people over, having hospitality in your home, a gathering for midweek Bible studies and men's group and women's group, that there's many times throughout the course of the week that we can gather together to encourage one another, to build one another up, to challenge each other. I've seen it so many times. A lot of times we'll get calls to the church professing Christians that are explaining how their life is an absolute complete mess. And so, you know, again, you turn, well, do you have a home church? And no, but I'm a Christian. And and, and what happens? It's, It's just, it's grievous. It's the inevitable result. When you try solo Christianity, things, the wheels will come off. Things do not go good. Later, turn to chapter 10. Chapter 10 and verse 23, it's a familiar text, but it's one that I want you to have riveted in your mind as we're talking about this. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another All the more as you see the day drawing near. A familiar text. It's one that we need. You know, the military, sometimes uh, when they, um, they deploy to the Middle East and they pull into a port, and the Middle East and certain countries, you're not allowed to just go out on liberty by yourself. They have what's called a buddy system. Right? You go out with somebody else. There's other scenarios as well. Even the Bible talks about that principle of going out and evangelism by twos and this kind of thing. And so a buddy system is a good thing. And, and, and we need even more than that. We need the companionship of the entire covenant community together. Last Sunday, our family uh, decided to read through Pilgrim's Progress again for our family worship. And um, the overall picture of the book is that Christian, pilgrim, the one that's on his pilgrimage, he loves the fellowship of the saints. 
He feasts on that. That's why when he comes to the palace beautiful, a picture of the elders in the local church, he, he is there and he's just beaming. He's there for several days and, and, and he loves that. But then also as he, uh, his companions of faithful until he was martyred and then hopeful, it says of them that they entered into a brotherly covenant and agreed to be companions as they journeyed. A brotherly covenant, that's a cool thing, isn't it? And so then, as they go side by side, they encounter Mr. Byans from the, the uh, town of Fair Speech and Mr. Hold the World, and then comes Demas and all of that. And as they dialogue between them, they're able to discern if this is a, a, a worthy person to have fellowship with or if he should be shunned. And then ultimately, they end up where? Doubting Castle. Giant despairs, harsh, abusive, cruelty of beating them up. And finally, after I believe the fourth day, he tells Christian, why don't you just kill yourself? Christian is so beaten down, so weighed down that he's actually contemplating the counsel of giant despair. It is hopeful, the newer Christian that comes beside him and encourages him of the commandments, but, but you would be violating God's law if you did that. And then he starts to remind him of the promises. And then as Bunyan in his classic allegorical style says, ah, yeah, Christian finally remembered that he has the key of promise. The key of promise of the promises of God that unlocked all the gates of Doubting Castle. We need each other. Bunyan knew the importance of Christian companionship as a pastor that's locked up alone in prison as he pens this very classic. The stakes are high, brethren. We need to spur one another on lest anyone fall back. And now the negative purpose clause. Encourage one another day after day as long as it is called today. So that, why? So that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Hardened is, is the idea of being made stubborn, and when you're hard-hearted, you forfeit a tender heart, and you can't be easily influenced by the Word of God. All those times when Moses came to Pharaoh again and again, Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart, finally God's hardening his heart in response. So those deceived by sin become hardened. What are some of the symptoms? Well, you can just ask yourself some of these things, just a couple things. We're reading the Bible and spending time in prayer is just not as desirable of a thing as it used to be. You begin, you can skip Monday, Tuesday, Thursday. You get to Friday and you realize I hadn't read or prayed the whole entire week. Beware, that's a symptom. Sunday morning rolls around and is that a, oh, I'm going to skip church. I think I have a sniffle. Um, maybe your conscience is dulled to where you're no longer shocked by sin. You see, brethren, your heart is either growing more and more soft and tender, or it's becoming harder and harder. That's why we need the means of grace, isn't it? It it recalibrates our hearts and our minds to think rightly about God and about who we are. It, It sets us right, even coming to the Lord's table, that ordinance, that weekly ordinance, that it sets our mind right. That we would receive that encouragement from the brethren, that we would hear from the voice of God through the proclamation of the word, that we would sit and participate in the Lord's Supper. These are means of grace which strengthen us and fortify our faith, that we can be wise unto the deceitfulness of sin. What is the deceitfulness of sin? 
It, it's, it's, it's something that's it, it's alluring. It's, it, it, it can draw us away. And it manifests itself in several different ways. One way is that you focus so much on somebody else's sin that you ignore your own sin. And, and, and so there's a, a deceitfulness then there. And Christ develops that in the Sermon on the Mount. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how is it that you say, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, you don't even see the log in your eye, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye. Then you will be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You see, to deceive means to cause to accept as true what is false. Sin promises more pleasure than obedience from God. Moses will say, we'll see in chapter 11 when we get there, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Sin is deceitful. Paul in Romans 7, he's, he's discussing that. He says, sin taking opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. Peter O'Brien in his commentary says, sin is viewed as a powerful agent that deceives and leads people into a hopeless position of apostasy. Second Thessalonians 2.10, Paul is developing that very theme and the end times there and the deception. He says, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because, here's the reason, they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. The deceit of sin we saw in the Garden of Eden, right? There's Adam, there's Eve, walking in the cool of the day with the Lord and everything going for them. And what happens? The serpent comes. Eve is deceived. She gives the fruit to her husband. They both sin. Actually, Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 2.14, it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And finally, we need to know that the devil is deceitful, and he is the archenemy of our souls. Him and his minions hate you. He hates your Christian life. He hates your Christian family. He hates all of that. In fact, in that um, uh, Ananias situation, Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit when they came and gave that large tithe? And Paul encourages us by telling us that Satan will be fully defeated at the end of Romans 16.20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. In other words, he'll soon be completely, he's already vanquished. We already see that in 2.14, that Jesus came that he might render powerless him who had the power over death, that is the devil. But he still is on a leash and can still exercise his deceitfulness towards us. And so, brethren, the antidote is to encourage one another. Not just, well, I have to go around and rebuke everybody for this and that and, and, and all of that. That's part of it. But what about pointing us to Christ? To point to such a beautiful and wonderful Savior who in his infinite mercy and in his great patience came to live among sinful men. He took on human flesh. He served and lived for 30-some years. He came and he died the horrible death for us. 
to remind each other of the great things that Christ has done, the wonderful things that He's accomplished, the wonderful things that He's done in your life, and the wonderful things that He is yet to do, relishing in the attributes of God, His character, His long-suffering towards us. All of that is invigorating and strengthening to our faith. That He is all-powerful, good, and wise. That He will never leave us or forsake us, as the writer will say at the end of the letter. It's not just, well, two Christians getting together and talking about the Super Bowl. Wow, we had some good fellowship, didn't we? Yeah, okay. <laughs> now, it can make you, it's not that you can't talk about those kinds of things, or the weather, or whatever, that's fine. But the conversation that's rooted in the Bible, rooted in Christ, rooted in our relationship with Him, is the kind that build up and strengthen here. Well, moving quickly to verse 14, notice, For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast at the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. The encouragement of verse 13 to encourage one another is based on verse 14. In other words, to put it this way, the verse emphasizes the necessity of using the antidote in verse 13. And you have become partakers of Christ. Now we saw this word back in verse 1 of this chapter. Holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. Cursed five times in the book of Hebrews. Um, only six times in the Bible. It means to have companionship with, to be in one with. And so we are partakers of Christ. It's in the perfect tense. So what he's saying here, you have become partakers of Christ, believing the real Christians, rooted back in an event in the past when you were saved, when you were converted, but abiding results into the present. That's what the perfect tense tells us. And so we have become partakers of Christ, should not be so easily turned to falling away. What does it mean to be a partaker of Christ? It means that you've been saved by Christ, that you are being sanctified by Christ, that you're being prepared and and, and will someday be glorified in Christ. Everything is in Christ. In order to be a partaker of Christ, you have to have a living and a real faith in Him or you're not a partaker with Christ. Now notice the conditional word. You become partakers of Christ if, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Uh, the ESV, I think, adds the word indeed, which is a good uh, addition, if indeed. It's a conditional statement that alludes to the future. He even says, the, 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 the last part of it, right, we hold fast the beginning of our assurance, hold it firm all the way till the end, right? From beginning to end, But it's a conditional statement. The verb that's used here for hold fast means to adhere firmly, to hold fast, to hold firmly to traditions and convictions and beliefs. You'll remember at the end of verse 6, if you look back over here, the second part of that verse, Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. It's kateko in the original, and, and it's a fascinating word. It, it, it emphasizes that the, the, the Christian will be marked by perseverance, by holding fast. 
And the parable of the sower that I brought up already a couple times in Luke's version of the good soil, it says this. We see the verb used here. But the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who've heard the word in an honest and good heart. They hold it fast and they bear fruit with perseverance. See, the, Luke uses the exact same word here. And we've already said, making it very clear, real Christians cannot lose their salvation. But what are we to hold fast to? What, what are we to hold fast to? He says here, right? To hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm and to the end. It could be our confidence, assurance. It's a word that's um, used in Hebrews 11.1 1, that we all know. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. What are we to be confident about? What are we to have assurance about? It is it our own good works? Is it our ministry? Is it our church attendance? Is it our baptism? Is it any of these kinds of things? No, our confidence and our assurance is rest solely on the work of Christ and his finished work in that alone. God wants you to have full assurance. He doesn't want you to have emotional and intellectual little buzzes. It's, it's an assurance that's based on the objective truth that Jesus Christ came to die for sinners He's been buried, resurrected, and ascended to the right hand of God, and there he intercedes for us as our faithful high priest. Therefore, let us diligently hold fast so that none of us will become hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Well, very quickly, uh, the rest of the passage here, the peril of unbelief, and really this is a recapitulation of what occurred in, in Psalm 95 as he kind of recaps it. Uh, the writer closes this penetrating section with six questions given in three pairs. You should be able to see that in your Bible. Uh, the intention is for the hearers to search their souls. Now that they've been exhorted through this new covenant application and truth, now search your souls and find out where are you at compared to that Exodus generation. So six questions, three sets of pairs. And there's actually a descent into the hardness of heart from hope to disbelief to disobedience. And so the writer um, concludes that so we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Let's look at 16 to 18. For who provoked him when they had heard? Well, indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? This is, by the way, a device called diatribe style. Uh, and a rhetorical question answered with another rhetorical question. Verse 17. And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned and whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear they shall not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. So we see they were not able to enter because of unbelief. And he concludes that section like two bookends on a set of, uh, you know, uh, John Owen's uh, collected works. Two bookends right here. The sea, the, the sea and the unbelief. You see it in verse 12 and verse 19. And he bookends it all together. Well, let's draw a couple concluding applications, brethren. Do you love the covenant community of the church? Do you love the bride? Do you love your brothers and sisters? Christ loves the church, and so should we. One of the blessings is to see people being saved and being brought in and added to the church. And we get to witness a baptism today, and Lord willing, a few more next month. And, and what an exciting thing that is to see the covenant community grow, to see souls saved. 
Do you cherish and love the fellowship of the brethren? Do, do you, do you like, are, you, are you one of those people that are the last to leave or the first to leave on a Sunday? And I know sometimes we have other commitments. Do you love the fellowship of the brethren? This is why for me and for so many of us, we have more in common with fellow believers than sometimes our own blood family who are out of Christ. We've got more in common There's a hymn, we should have suggested this to sing, Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. Um, It goes on and says, Before the Father's throne we pour our ardent prayers, our fears, our hopes, our aims are one, our comforts and, and our cares. We share our mutual woes, our mutual burdens bear, and often for each other flows a sympathizing tear. Beautiful, beautiful hymn. Speaks of the covenant community. And then we need to ask ourselves, are are we being deceived in some way? Unbelief kept Israel out of the promised land. At least all of those, a whole lot of men, hundreds of thousands of men. Unbelief will keep you out of heaven. If you continue in rebellion and in disobedience, you will prove yourself to be an unbeliever and will be kept out of heaven. Have you believed a lie? Maybe this could manifest itself in many different ways, that somehow God's going to be pleased with my works, so I will just work diligently on the treadmill, earning his favor. Maybe it's easy believism that anybody can be saved with this little thing, or you know, just raising a pinky to Jesus, nominal Christianity. Maybe you say, well, but no, no, I, I actually believe the Bible. I actually believe that Christ has come and that he's reigning in heaven, but you do not submit your life to him as Lord, and submit to him as Lord. Maybe some of you think, hey, I'm coming from a good Christian home. My parents are strong believers. They've served in the church all their lives. Surely God is going to say, that's, that's good. You get in, you get a pass. No, each of us needs to stand before God in that day. We need to beware that we're not deceived. Listen to Thomas Brooks from his book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. He says this, Sin is a very deceitful and bewitching nature. It will kiss the soul and look enticing to the soul, but yet will betray the soul forever. It will, with Delilah, smile upon us, that we may betray us into the hands of the devil. And she, as she did, Samson, into the hands of the Philistines. Oh, therefore, forever take heed of playing with and nibbling at Satan's golden baits. We need to cultivate a tender heart, and that is cultivated from the means of grace of which we talked. Thomas Watson observes, a hard heart is the dwelling place of Satan. As God has two places to dwell, in heaven and in the humble heart, so the devil has two places to dwell, in hell and in the hard heart. If you're here today and you're outside of Christ, see the folly of unbelief. You have concrete example, hundreds of thousands and, and hundreds of thousands more since that Exodus experience. Don't harden your heart. You are in danger of ultimately falling away from the Lord to the point where there's no recovery. But today the door of mercy stands open. Every hour that passes, your heart is becoming harder and harder and harder. If you're outside of Christ, run to him today. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. And then know how joyful it is, confessing your sins, repenting of your sins. You can say with the psalmist, how blessed is he 
whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. Let's pray. Father, indeed, we pray that your word would be driven home into our hearts. We thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for the plain plainness of your word that we can all understand. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to apply that, that you would continue to purify this covenant community, that you would continue to save souls, that you would build up your church for your own glory. We ask these things in the blessed name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.